Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that will haunt you like a specter. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector, and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Beth, and I'm on book talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the substack Restorative Romance. Gaywick, which was published in 1980 by Vincent Virga, is often referred to as the first gay gothic romance. In a world where Carmilla and other famous homoerotic gothic texts were published in centuries prior, it's more useful to view Gaywick through a romance genre fiction lens, as making strides on that front is no small feat. Gaywick was published by Avon after Virga pitched it to Gwen Edelman, who then sent it on to Avon's then-editor-in-chief Robert Wyatt, a veteran of publishing who is also a gay man. The reception for Gaywick was mostly positive, although Virga has noted that some bookstore displays would warn that this was a gay novel, to make sure that people not inspecting the cover closely enough wouldn't accidentally purchase something that wasn't in line with their values. Virga has also recounted an incident with a bookstore in Texas who had a bullet shot through their window at a Gaywick display. In his author's note, Virga quotes an Amazon review published in 1998 that states, It is possible that this book, written before the onset of AIDS, is one of the final glimpses of the optimism that was part of the early gay movement. Virga was inspired to write Gaywick after he read one of his mother's gothic novels. In this book, the dirty secret was not the woman in the attic of Jane Eyre, but of the distant husband's concealed homosexuality. Virgo wondered to himself, what if genre has no gender? Set on the Long Island estate of the wealthy Gaylord family in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Gaywick charts an intergenerational terror born of abuse, madness, and unrequited love. Like most gothic romances of the era, Gaywick is a book that takes a microscope to cruelty. This will be a heavier discussion, so I want to issue content warnings for incest, child sexual abuse, rape, and mutilation. Before we get started, I will give a plot summary. The brief prologue set in 1969 is our first glimpse into Robert White, who writes in his journal, I have just returned from a visit to Gaywick. Memories at eventide sustain me. The wonder of my life and the passion of our love triumph over time's constraint. The book, and the journal, backs up to the events before the year 1899. Robbie is 17, and he describes himself as small, sickly, and painfully shy. He's a voracious reader who is alarmed and startled by the outside world, confining himself to study in isolation. Robbie's father did not encourage his daydreaming, but his mother introduced him to community figures who procured him books like Ivanhoe, Mansfield Park, Wuthering Heights, and David Copperfield. One day, Robbie finds his mother weeping at a kitchen table. She's crying, catatonic, and she won't stop. A frightened Robbie leaves her and goes back to his room to read. When his father returns, he calls a doctor. Days later, after her condition showed no sign of improvement, Robbie's father took her to a mental hospital for examination. His father returned alone. This kills any rapport Robbie could have cultivated with his father, and Robbie rebuffs his father's plan to have him sit the entrance exam for Harvard. Instead, Robbie departs for what he calls the hermetic world of Gaywick, a Long Island estate owned by the mysterious and handsome Dono Gaylord. Thanks to a mutual connection, Father Howard, Robbie is able to secure the job of a state librarian. 
Before introducing him to his new employer, Howard tells Robbie about the Gaylord's family's sordid history. Dono's grandfather, Gaylord, was a wealthy merchant who fell in love with a Georgian belle, Jenny Lee, and they were the reigning couple in New York society until the Civil War broke out. Gaylord, quote, invested capital on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line and flourished as no others had done before. When things started to look bleak for the Confederacy, Gaylord's southern-born wife, Jenny Lee Gaywick, returned to Atlanta to coerce her parents to return north with her. And as they tried to cart off valuables from what is heavily implied to be a plantation, they are shot by, quote, Yankee soldiers. This enraged grandfather Gaylord, who offered the Confederacy money and goods to slay the people who killed his wife. After he died, his son met an intense Bostonian woman at the opera named Mary Rose and took her to the Gaywick estate. When Mary Rose became pregnant, she locked herself in her rooms out of fear of childbirth. Rather inexplicably, five days after sequestering herself, Mary Rose declared herself well and ready to give birth. She has twin boys, Dono, the current owner of Gaywick, and Cormac. Their dynamic is established immediately after birth. Cormac is larger, and Mary Rose frets that he bullied Dono in the womb. Cormac crawled first, spoke first, stood first. The identical twins mirrored each other, eventually only becoming distinguishable through rings they wore on the opposite hand. Mary Rose eventually hired Julian Denvers as a tutor for the young boys, and Everard Keyes as a piano instructor. Keyes and Denvers, though opposite in physicality and spiritual temperament, became great friends. As the twins grew older, Cormac and Dono took New York society by storm as beautiful and wealthy whirlwinds. Mary Rose eventually grew ill and died from weakness of the lungs. A few short years later, she was followed by her husband and one of her sons, Cormac, who died in a fire. When Robbie arrives at Gatewick, he finds his job as a librarian is fairly luxurious. He's gifted with clothing, a loud run of the estate, and is taken under the wing of both the rather eccentric Keys, who provides him with piano lessons, and Denvers, who guides him around literature. Robbie is immediately smitten with Dono, who has an extreme beauty and is also an introvert. Dono is also very kind to Robbie, but when Robbie remarks on this, Dono corrects him, saying that he is definitely not kind. While working on the estate, Robbie learns more about Dono's deceased twin, Cormac who was noted to have a very violent temperament. It's heavily implied that Cormac attacked another young servant, Brian, leading to his near castration, as well as being the cause of the loss of several of Denver's fingers. When Robbie is in the library, he finds a small glass display case and 13 headless bees labeled La Vendetta, 13 Queen's Revenge for One Undeserved Sting, signed by King McCormick. Robbie sees that Cormac would have been 13 when he created the display, noting that it seems too old for childish cruelty. Robbie begins to have hallucinations about the Rossetti portrait that was said to resemble Dono's mother, Mary Rose. He sees an image of his mother's face, rapidly aged from his recent recollection of her, and passes out. One night, he wakes up to find Dono in his room. They embrace and fall asleep. When he wakes up, Dono is fully dressed and leaves the room. Robbie tries to follow, but he's unable to locate him. Later, he finds Dono walking toward the sea outside the house. When Robbie runs to Dono, Dono is shocked and tells him that he was sleepwalking and that he had never visited Robbie in his room. Soon after, Denvers brings Robbie a book of Walt Whitman that he found on Dono's desk. There's a passage marked that praises the feeling of love, 
and Robbie hopes that it's a message from Dono. Then he finds another marked passage, and this one is more ominous, seemingly warning away the prospect of a new love interest. Robbie is devastated, thinking that the shock was more than he could physically bear. Dono frequently leaves Gaywick for his home in Gramercy Park, but Robbie continues to hold a candle for him. When Dono returns with two of his friends, Robbie is enveloped into their intimacy, and something seems to build between him and Dono. Robbie writes in his journal that, quote, to deny any longer my love for him would have been an evil. To say I have dreamed of him is an understatement. That night, he came to dwell in my soul. One night, Robbie finds Dono's childhood entries. The sparse entries show that he and Cormac used to switch their rings, meaning they'd be mistaken for each other. Robbie considers reading the rest of the diary, but decides against it. Later, when curiosity overcomes him, he goes looking for it, but it's been removed. Robbie continues to have unsettling dreams. One day, Robbie comes across a hidden room in a library and hears a woman's voice. Later, he enters, finding a silver-haired woman with the face of his mother, if she had aged 20 years overnight. They have a friendly chat, and Robbie promises to return to her, even though he's unsure of who she is. He begins to visit her regularly. One night, he's alarmed to find the woman in his room, holding a knitting needle as though it were a dagger. She confuses Robbie by saying, they're dead, and Denver's is mad. He's tormenting Cormac. She then leaves the room suddenly. Robbie goes to Gramercy Park to spend Christmas with Dono and his friends, and he has a wonderful time. When he returns to Gaywick, he finds a new person there, Jones, the 13-year-old son of Dono's deceased business partner. Robbie harbors an instant and intense dislike for Jones. To Robbie, he's uncouth, ill-mannered, and a bore. Both Keyes and Denver's are rather taken with Jones, and so the household starts to move along with Jones's whims. The household only eats food that Jones likes, and Jones's lessons take over the library where Robbie works. He becomes increasingly resentful of Jones, who taunts him and lets on that he's only pretended so far that he doesn't know how to read, but he's actually read both Robbie and Dono's diaries. I just want my share, Jones tells Robbie. You get the big fish, can't I have the small fry? To his horror, Robbie realizes that Dono is the big fish and the small fry are keys in Denver's. The reason the older men are indulging Jones is because they think they're in love with him. Robbie starts receiving orchids overnight, and he believes Jones is sending them. Jones makes a few offers of friendship to Robbie, but he rebuffs him. Jones tells Robbie that when Cormac was still alive, he castrated Brian, the young servant boy, for rebuffing him. He goes on to say that Cormac cut off Denver's fingers when Denver's came to his bed, mistaking him for Dono. Robbie is incensed at Jones for telling him this, but he's not sure if he believes him. Robbie gets a message from Dono telling him that his father has died. Robbie and Dono attend the funeral, and afterwards, Robbie is surprised to see his mother return from the asylum. She stays on at the house, and Robbie returns to Gaywick, while Dono goes back to Gramercy Park. Robbie and Dono write each other letters that become increasingly intimate. One night when Dono returns, Jones says something to Dono at dinner that Robbie doesn't hear, but he notices everyone at the table get visibly uncomfortable. Later that evening, Jones returns to Robbie, saying that he will be leaving soon and that his plan is almost set. The next morning, Jones is gone. Dono tells Robbie he knows he's been visiting the old woman in the secret room and that the woman is actually Dono's mother. When she started to go mad, his father faked her death to save face, and she's been living and hiding ever since. 
Dono also tells Robbie the story of his and Cormac's first nanny, a woman who tortured and viciously punished them when they were less than four years old. Cormac bared the brunt of her ire until one day their father discovered what was going on and dismissed the nanny. Robbie finds another orchid in his room and wonders if Jones has returned. That night, Denvers comes to his room and tells him there's something that he needs to see on the beach. Robbie is horrified when he realizes that it's Jones's body. Denvers accuses Dono of killing Jones because Jones was attempting to blackmail him. Dono and Robbie continue their relationship, which has become increasingly sexual. Robbie goes through Jones's belongings and finds a packet of photographs that are startling. One is of him and Dono in Robbie's bedroom, the night that Dono said Robbie was sleepwalking and dreaming. The rest are pornographic images of Gaylord Sr. and his lover, Stephen, and one with his son, Cormac. Robbie finds Dono's diary among Jones's belongings, and it confirms that Gaylord abused Cormac, and Dono was jealous. Robbie thinks to himself that their sorrow is suffocating him. One night, Robbie is lured out to the cliffs by Keys. It turns out the Keys had been drugging him and planned to murder him. Dono rescues Robbie and tells Robbie that Keys hanged himself shortly after. Robbie tells Dono that he will never leave him and is surprised when Dono begins to react angrily. Dono begins to beat Robbie, nearly killing him, and leaves him alone on the beach. When Robbie encounters Dono later, he comes to the startling realization that he wasn't attacked by Dono, but by Cormac. Every time he was on an outdoor tryst with Dono, it was really with his twin. When his father died, Cormac was told by Denvers that he would be seen as responsible, so he went into hiding. When Robbie arrived at Gaywick, Denvers told Cormac to kill Robbie so that he could save Dono from a schemer. Cormac couldn't go through with it because he fell in love with Robbie. Cormac lures Robbie out to the sea and they confess their love for each other, but Robbie refuses to leave with him on a boat. Cormac tells Robbie that they will have to die together then, and then just as he moves to kill him, Dono shoots and then kills Cormac. Dono later reveals that he has discovered that Robbie's mother and his mother are sisters, making them cousins, and that Denvers, embittered from his unrequited love for Dono's father and later Dono, plotted Robbie's death. Dono then adopts Robbie so that he will be named Robert White Gaylord, and they move in together at Gramercy Park. The epilogue, set in 1969, chronicles Dono's death with Robbie by his side. Bells tolled, the sea continued, our love endures. It was a good plot summary. <laughs> you think so? I struggled. <laughs> I don't know, like... I, it was nice to hear it too. It like reminded me what happened, even though I finished it like yesterday. Like it's the end it just, just like slides off my brain. The ending was like I think I was kind of getting tired when I was reading the ending again, and I was just like, sure, <laughs> not really the best for processing. Yeah. And Denver's and Keys, I understand why there are two of them, but I I couldn't keep track of which one was doing what for what reason. Yes. Also, they're like, sometimes they're doing the same thing. That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> Because, like, Keyes was the one that was, like, really loved Jones, but they both loved Jones, but, like, Keyes yes. would kill for him. Wait, but then Denver would kill everyone Jonas. else. Yeah. Yeah, but every tension of this book was, like, 50%. <laughs> Same with, like, Stormfire. It was just, like, a lot of plot happening. And then a lot yeah. of, like, doubles. Like, there's just two of yeah. every person. <laughs> the, names, the names here were really too much. We've all noted how the beginning of the story, particularly the backstory about Dono's family, is really compelling. 
The Gaylord family are kind of on par with the Astors and the Vanderbilts as far as extreme wealth at the time, but Virga starts them off on a very sinister note, particularly with the story of Jenny Lee and the profiteering from the Civil War. We get a lot of what I sometimes call Vanderbilt heroes in historical romance, but they typically have this distance from the atrocities that no doubt got them there. What stood out to you about the characterization here? I like that Virga had the Kaylord's family wealth stem from more profiteering. Uh, this is a gothic story set in America, so referencing something so unique to our history and entwining it with the story of the family reinforces the sins of the father will be visited on the son's dynamic. Like, what is the price other people paid for their wealth? And I liked that there's the the cursed generational stuff um, goes back two generations in uh, the story we get sort of the grandfather getting the um, the fortune with Jenna Lee and the war profiteering. But then also the, the Cormac, uh, the first Cormac, the father, is connected to that. Like he he's really the abuser of the family. But even the backstory when we're getting the, the sort of pre-stuff from the Gaylord family saga, the story of Cormac and Mary Rose is told in this sort of idyllic way. I almost thought it was like, oh, it's kind of cute. And like the tragedy is going to be coming from like an early death of one of these people. And then that's going to be the source of some of the, the harm. I was not anticipating Cormac and uh, the, the first Cormac and being an abuser when I first read that sort of saga. But those sort of layers of the generational trauma become clear as the story continues to unfold. Like there were a lot of moments between Cormac and Mary Rose in the telling from Howard to Robbie that our father Howard that I thought were kind of charming. Like it just seemed like this this steely Bostonian woman falling in love with someone who's half from the South and they have this sort of age gap, but it, it's kind of charming. But obviously both generations have this like darkness attached to them that seems in, in part to come from the wealth itself, but then also the source of the wealth. So it's not just the war profiteering, it's the volume of wealth and sort of that all gets wrapped up together. I like that you uh, kind of mentioned uh, Mary Rose and uh, the... I struggle so much calling him Cormac, but like his, yeah, the father's name is Cormac too. But like, I like that you mentioned their, um, them together and then finding out later that the father was going to be an abuser because something that kind of like brings them together in a kind of a weird, almost circular way is Denver's. Cause like when Denver's is first introduced, he and Mary Rose are like super tight. Like they have this really like deep, intimate connection. But then we later find out that Denver's is uh, kind of obsessed with her husband and that her husband has kind of like kept him dangling on a string. And that kind of like created this like ripple effect of like terror and abuse, which is definitely not something that I saw coming. So the backstory was so clever, first of all, because you, of course, don't get the entire truth, which is so much more horrifying up front, but Virga is still able to create kind of like a sense of foreboding. Uh, And then he lays the groundwork for that intergenerational trauma that will become the main focus of the book. So like kind of like introducing these key players in ways where you kind of like see them as human beings and then their propensity for cruelty later will have more of an impact. I keep thinking of the Eden series by Marilyn Harris, which are also family sagas and gothic romances centered around a family with extreme wealth and privilege. And it was also published by Avon starting in the late 1970s and then I think through the early 1990s. 
both Gaelic and the Eden series lean into the idea that power is born of cruelty and that even ostensibly good actors like Dono Gaylord or Edward Eden, who suffer greatly under the cruelty of their forebears, are still complicit in the misery of others. So Dono rarely does something outright unkind or cruel in the book, but you find out Jones's dad was murdered for trying to union bust, thinking that Dono would approve. So even though Dono makes it clear that he did not approve, it's not a great leap when you realize his entire family's empire was built on misery. I think eventually we just need to do episodes about the Eden series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because I bring it up so often. <laughs> it's really become like Reformed Rake's canon. Like, Charles has to mention Marilyn <laughs> at some point. Charles is big on compare and contrast to different stories. <laughs> I just, which there's... I'm a fan of. They're just so, oh, they're so good. Like, I think <laughs> there's so much, in, they're, and these were published around the same time by Avon, and I they're very much like, kind of in communication with each other. Like, I can absolutely see Avon being like, oh yeah, we'll take both of these. Like, they, um, just like different types of intergenerational trauma. Uh, Marilyn Harris is much meaner. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I did like something, like both of you said, where we get like the backstory initially and we kind of get like the sunnier version. So I feel like this is, consistent throughout the book where you get like the utopian version of the story and then like the seedy underbelly of the story comes later where and then that reframes everything that you saw earlier when you first got the story yeah and i think the connection that the the there's some of the the curse of gaywick is connected to the wealth and war profiteering and not the queerness like that the it's almost like the abuse between queer characters is a result of the the curse of the prophet rather than the the queerness as inherently bad or sinister, which I think would be easy to collapse. And I think maybe we're, when we talk about this later with like, how does this represent queer people in 1980? I think that's an important point to say, like this is the queerness is not inherently destructive. It's just, it's manifesting for these characters in this house, uh, making money or living off the profits of this sort of person who played both sides of the civil war, this like wound of America, which I I think makes sense that he's thinking about that because of how often like Whitman is referenced. Like this is not someone who is pulling this as just like the trauma that is happening at like this time in America. Like he's thinking about the civil war and how it plays out for like multiple generations afterwards. So it's not happening in a vacuum, but I think that the backstory is really um, informative and how Virga thinks about queerness in this book because it's it's separate from sort of the, the queer identities of characters. As we've discussed before, it's pretty common for gothic romance to be single POV, but an interesting choice here is that Virga is telling the story through Robbie's journal slash memoir. They're not dated journal entries, but sometimes future Robbie will make corrections or even make fun of a thought he just wrote in the journal, which pulls you out a bit and reminds you that this is a recollection. What stood out to you about this narrative choice? So this was by far my favorite part of the book. I do love like POV structure things. Um, It links Robbie pretty directly to a few of the heroes of the books that he loves so much. So there are multiple references in Gaywick to David Copperfield and Jane Eyre, who are two of the most famous first person with some distance narrators in Victorian lit. David Copperfield from Dickens very specifically is a man looking back on his past from a specific point in his life. There's frequent gaps in that novel between David's feelings at the time and his feelings in the retelling. 
Jane Eyre is more directly in the lineage of Gothic novels than David Copperfield, and Jane similarly has that distance between herself in the moment and herself in the retelling. Robbie makes this a little bit more explicit even, since he's often rereading his own journals. So the structure is never too far from the mind of the reader, which I feel like happens when you read David Copperfield or Jane Eyre, or sometimes you forget that the person telling you the story has distance. The journals and the documentations are also really important to other characters as well. Jones even points out this importance of documentation, with, and he's noticing that everyone's always writing things down in this house because he references both Dono's and Robbie's journals, which are sort of sources of some of his sinister machinations is that he reads these journals. Yeah, I think we all enjoyed like future Robbie's little asides and his kind of like, why did I use that word here? Uh, Virga controls what information we know because it's all filtered through Robbie. So we got, again, single POV. And as always, there's that tension of how reliable is this storyteller? I think at one point Robbie writes, reader, I was dumbfounded. And that made me laugh so hard. (laughs) What a sharp reminder of whose point of view this is from. But yeah, I also like how Virga used this to like lampshade young Robbie's naivete. Like at the end of the book, Robbie remarks that he and common sense do not always go hand in hand, which is a criticism that a lot of gothic heroines are the recipient of. Um, But like he was like him, like making that critique of like his in the moment decisions. Like it wasn't necessarily like young Robbie thinking that. I like that you mentioned Jones earlier here too, uh, for a few different reasons. The first is I, I think like, the descriptions of Jones were always kind of like the clearest that I'm reading young Robbie's thoughts because they are so clearly like a young man who like sees another person as an interloper and competition. And they almost feel like uncharacteristically like cruel because Robbie doesn't really have like his older brother was also kind of a bit of a bumbler, like Jones's older brother. Uh, But Robbie was kind to him, but like Jones in particular is the source of his ire. And I think there's kind of like a competitive nature there but jones is also right like if you're a family of secret keepers like maybe writing every little thought you had down (laughs) and storing it away it's maybe not the best move or like not keeping track of your journals like things are always going missing in this house and they're like oh it went missing like i wonder who took it probably someone who's like plotting your doom like (laughs) (laughs) there's like there's so many options robbie (laughs) Honestly, it was Jones's responsibility to blackmail, I think. Like, like everybody's <laughs> leaving all this evidence around. <laughs> I think this fit with Virga's style, too, because he is, he references so many different books in this book. So it makes sense to me that he'd have a narrator who's just like constantly commenting on his previous life. And yeah. It reads like a commonplace book for like, just a queer man in 1980 like I imagine Virga like collecting things like collecting little quotes and um, yeah. like turns of phrases from like all the media that he's experiencing um, so it's almost like Virga is also keeping like a cultural journal of like what what gay men are watching or talking about gay mm-hmm. men who enjoy like early 20th century movies and 19th century novels mm-hmm. yeah there uh, I oh, didn't Beth didn't you say that like he Virga said on his website or something that like nobody has ever found all of the references sprinkled throughout the book. Yeah, and then he mentioned like one reader. He said I think seventy percent had found like seventy percent of the references. And I was and like, there's a lot in here too. So then I'm like, there's got to be way more subtle ones that we just like are not picking up on. Yeah, me f- like 
catching the most famous quote from Wuthering Heights being yeah. like, oh, that's from Wuthering Heights. Like, <laughs> pat on the back. Well, sometimes he is like, sometimes he is like directly quoting things. Like he's like mm-hmm. pretty obviously quoting Shakespeare yeah. at the end. And mm-hmm. so, but it's, it's like building to the characterization and he's obviously referencing those things for a reason. It's not mm-hmm. just for like, I, I feel like it's both like what Emma said. It's like a cultural journal, but it also is like, I don't know. Robbie it's would weird. quote Shakespeare. <laughs> it's weird. Like, there's, like, the quotes that, like, Robbie is making, like, Rob, it's kind of like uh, Ewan McGregor and Moulin Rouge. Like, he, mm-hmm. he has, like, a preternatural ability to write music because he's actually writing music from, like, the 20th century. Right. It's like Robbie is, like, quoting things that are from, like, he quotes um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> so it's like, oh, Robbie has this, like, he's this, like, he's like Merlin. Like, he, he knows, like, what Audrey Hepburn's going to say. In Breakfast at Tiffany's or um, How to Steal a Million, like right. <laughs> he's he's seen all these movies that that Virga obviously is a fan of. So before Robbie goes to Gaywick, he notes that quote: "I was menaced by every other human being. I saw everyone's capacity to inflict pain and expected every intimacy to bring disaster, shattering my inner balance irrevocably. I knew myself capable of such horrors. Terrified of myself, I became terrified of others." When he meets Dono, he recognizes a kinship in that they're both introverts. But do you think that Robbie's description of himself is also applicable to Dono? So some of the parallels between Robbie and Donna made me feel sort of like, I'll take you word, I'll take your word for it, Robbie. Um, I think there's an alignment of queerness that Robbie sees in Donna. Though to be fair, almost all the characters in the book are gay. But there's like this moment of recognition that seems to be the co- sort of a common structure between two queer characters, especially in historical settings. Like I think we saw that in Unmasked by the Marquis. In our Taxonomy of Rakes episode, which I just listened for the transcript purposes, so it's for the, right on the front of my mind. Chels talked about the queer appeal of a rake character where a reader might experience both attraction to and envy of the rake's identity. Do I want to date you or do I want to be you? But Donna's personality is kind of characterized in the negative. He's not like Cormac. He's not like his father. He's not like Robbie's father. And to remember that Robbie is the one doing the characterizing, Donna is sort of the perfect screen to project onto. Right. Kind of jumping on what you said, Emma, where Donna's characterization leans heavily on Cormac's. Well, even though they're twins, Cormac feels much more like an older brother. He did everything first, like walking and talking. He's dominant and violent. And so Virga piles all the passive character traits onto Dono. Robbie starts off the book quite introverted and admires this in Dono. And then by the end of the book, he's come into his own a bit and finds he loves Cormac as well. Yeah, Dono remarks at one point that he is haunted by Cormac, and it's almost like his life has been put on pause since his brother and father's deaths. Robbie saying, I saw everyone's capacity to inflict pain and expected every intimacy to bring disaster uh, is very much Dono's childhood experience. His relationship with his brother who defended him, but also tormented him and others around him. And then also kind of his relationship with people who are supposed to be kind of paternal figures like Denver's. Like there's kind of uh, this idea that you're like existing in a space, that a space that's supposed to protect you with people that are supposed to protect you. Um, but you still have to retreat further into yourself because those people aren't trustworthy. I wonder if this is a moment where Robbie, like future Robbie is having some like distance. And when he like says these things, it's it's almost like a collapse between him and Dono where they're sort of, he's taking on this other person's perspective Uh, because Robbie's like original sort of backstory is not particularly abusive. It's kind of uncomfortable for him. He doesn't really get along with his father. 
his mother is, is ill and so he's not fitting into his household. He definitely needs to escape his household, but it doesn't meet the level of Gaywick. So he's kind of in this like way that he's talking about like the, the capacity for evil in people that he sees. I wonder if some of that is his like reflection on like, I, I'm now ascribing that quality to me when actually I saw it in this other person. So one of the ways that Robbie and Dono kind of like connect with each other a little bit more early on in the book is actually their mothers, like uh, kind of like the trauma of like seeing their mothers kind of waste away. I think Dono reveals that that happened to his mother instead of her dying peacefully. I don't think he admits to Robbie that she's still alive at that point. There was like an intense connection both between Mary Rose and her twins. Like she didn't want to leave them at all. She didn't want to leave them in any room alone. She was like very, very connected with them. And then Robbie also had kind of that same like intense relationship with his mother where she like fostered his reading and like his response to her like kind of like catatonic state was just kind of retreat into himself and to go into another room and read. And he was so ashamed of himself for that. Like, I I think that's kind of like maybe another way that they see recognize this kind of like kinship. They've both had like the relationships not really worked out the way that they had hoped and they're, they don't really know how to react to the outside world anymore. I'm also thinking about Mary. So we talked about how like the gay husband is the woman in the attic in Gaywick, but also like there is like literally a woman in the attic yes too. she's in the <laughs> um, spare room of the library <laughs> yeah, technically but it's like mary rose like when you first hear her sort of intense like mothering mothering of the the two boys i thought of her as like a like a norma bates i was like oh she's the abuser like she's the one who's controlling them and is like so doting on them to the point where it's like that's sort of the relationship that i was suspect of but i guess it's like once you know cormac the first sort of abuse of his son you're like okay maybe some of the like controlling like doting was actually like this method of like protection for the the boys where she's like didn't want them to let them out of her sight didn't want um to ever be away from them it's like maybe that's sort of the angle i don't think you're gonna make us that explicit that what mary rose knew or like what her intentions were with that level of um like connection that she had with the boys but it it is sort of a subversion of that arc where it's like you think like the the overbearing mother is going to be the one who is sort of Sending, especially like, like thinking about Norman Bates, who's definitely like queer coded, like that's a very sort of common arc of like overbearing mother, potentially sexual abuse between mother and son, and then a queer coded child um, who also does abuse. And but this is this is different than that. So the story of Mary Rose becomes um, sort of flipped on its head based on who's telling it. And she also, Mary Rose might not have been abusive, but she kind of also is the first one to ostracize Cormac. Like when they're child, when Cormac and Dono are children, she she like accuses Cormac of like hoarding, like I, yeah. She, he's like he was he was eating <laughs> eating more in the womb. Yeah, it's like like uh, Cormac is a bigger child, and then yeah. uh, Mary Rose like uh, puts all of her protectiveness towards Dono. Um, I think it doesn't say that it went that way for long, but that really stuck out to me as being so bizarre and like such an extreme reaction. And I, I think that's something that kind of like continues on through Cormac's childhood too, is kind of like uh, he's always kind of set apart from Dono. So like even though Cormac is like responsible for his actions, I think he was kind of primed to be the aggressor. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like they... It's like a thing where it's like everyone kind of has a role in the family and they kept blaming 
McCormick for things or saying he is a particular way. And then he kind of became that. Like, Yeah. And that actually even kind of gets into the next point, I believe. Uh, so midway through the book, Dono describes Cormac like this. He was cursed with a violent temper, which he never controlled. That's not fair. I shouldn't say that. He tried. He just didn't succeed very often. Everyone has suffered because of it. He was in a horrible boating accident with Brian. That boy hasn't spoken a clear word since. Denver's is cruelly maimed. Keyes is a broken man. Cormac left us empty creatures. It's as if we, too, are made of walnut. So how do you feel about this, knowing that both Cormac was abused by both his father and his first nanny, and then also kind of primed to be, like, othered a bit by his mother? I have been thinking a lot about backstory, actually, and how, like, necessary it is. But I think for a story like Gaywick and the style that it's in, it tells us not only about Cormac's character, but the dynamic between Cormac and Dono. We learn about the abusive nanny. Um, Cormac tells Dono he's stronger than him, so he'll take the brunt of the abuse. And then later on, like Charles said, Cormac inflicts violence on others. I don't think you have to anchor like all sources of violence to a character's backstory. Think like the Joker, where as a character, it's better to have him kind of come from nowhere. But in a story about the cyclical nature of abuse, I think you need like some kind of anchoring point. So... When Charles read that quote out, I was thinking about the walnut boat imagery. So to explain, um, they talk about, so uh, Dono says, as if we too were made of walnut, and they're talking about these walnut boats that the boys have. Um, and it's really striking in the book. It was like one of the things that I pulled out. It It's it's one of these, it sort of plays with the concept of scale that I think comes up in the book a lot, where little things seem big and big things seem small. And I think that connects to sort of the cycle of abuse. So Donna references as if we were two made of walnut. He's referencing two little boats that the twins had literally made out of walnut wood, but made to look like walnut shells, like a child would use for a tool, a, for, like a child would use for a toy. So these are boats that people can sit in, but they look like a, a small thing that would hold like a, a thimble. There's this like uncanniness to it because a walnut boat was usually the size of a walnut, but the metaphor gets extended to be about the hollowness that comes from the cycles of abuse. I think this sort of uncanniness comes throughout the book. Robbie being hypervigilant about some of Donna's behaviors, but then being blithely not scared about how people are clearly coming into his room at night or when he, when he's not there and rearranging or bringing gifts. I also looked up if walnut is actually used to build boats because I thought it was kind of an odd wood to be using boats. And it's not used to build boats because it's considered bad luck because of its use in building coffins. So I thought it was another example of Virga sort of having this like very rich like metaphor imagery that's obviously well-researched that when we see a walnut boat that's actually like able to hold humans in it, it's a sign of like bad luck and death. Like the size of a coffin. <laughs> right. Yeah, like for like a little boy. Like, oh my it, gosh. It, <laughs> uh, it, yeah, so I, I was like, I don't think boats are made of walnut. And actually it's a, an incredibly good wood to build boats with, but it's very, it's superstitious. It's a very nautical um, superstition. We spend so much of the book ingesting the horrors Cormac has inflicted piecemeal that it wasn't necessarily a surprise to see all this backstory, but it did kind of throw me for a loop how stunningly cruel it was. Part of the nanny's punishment of them was just like, I don't know even how to describe it. It was like psychological torture, like sexual torture as well, like kind of like sexualizing children's and like m- making them ashamed of their thoughts. Uh, yeah, she made like, them wear like chastity belts or something like that. <laughs> it yeah. was insane. And they were younger than four years old at the time. Yes. 
So that, that to me seems like an age where like you wouldn't necessarily remember what happened to you, but like it would profoundly affect you too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the sort of like two level, like the fact that Viorga gives us two sources of abuse for Cormac that are very clear and it's like they're also sort of other ones like the the nanny and his father. Um, it's sort of, it's like laying it on thick, but also it, it makes sense of like for Cormac's characterization that there would be sort of this abuse that he shares with Donna with the the uh, nanny and then also this abuse that separates them mm-hmm. um and and it's like that that's creates like resentment between the two brothers and so it's even even in their abuse they have this like separation that causes like conflict between the two of them yeah and then the reason because like Dono was also like jealous of Cormac that he's getting this attention from his father and like the reasoning why Cormac is being like isolated and sought out like this is because they're trying to keep him in line like his father and his father's lovers are think that this is like the easiest way to placate him which is wild <laughs> yeah it's like it's I don't know. I think it's, I I like what you said so much earlier, Beth, about like, kind of like when backstory matters, because it, it, I totally agree with you that like, I think that you don't need to have like some sort of tragedy to explain away why a character is being awful. Sometimes people are just awful and sometimes that's more interesting. Uh, But of course, like when you're a big spooky house, like (laughs) intergenerational trauma, like I think that uh, kind of being able to look at Cormac as a really complex character uh, makes it a better story. And the whole point of these like gothic type stories is like there's secrets and you're trying to uncover the secrets. And so like this like abuse is like part of that, like revealing and uncovering of the past. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so I had some thoughts about the way that characterization and occupation worked in Gaywick. Um, I think I took note of this mainly because Robbie is, his father wants him to go to law school and Robbie's like, I don't want to go to law school. And then he gets this opportunity to be a librarian, which is not dissimilar to my career path, becoming a law librarian who does not practice law. So I was like, oh, like this is the closest I've ever had to being like a law librarian in a romance novel. So I just, I noted that early. So I'm sort of tracking occupation throughout the book. But the way that people are sort of attached to their jobs in the book it really struck me as like a main point of characterization. I think because there's so many parallels between characters like Keys and Denver's, the main distinguishing thing for me between the two of them was one of them is the tutor, one of them is the piano teacher. So often they're doing very similar things, even though they sort of think of them as very, they think of themselves as very distinct from each other. But they're engaged with sort of similar like hosting of Robbie and sort of they'll be kind to Robbie and then cruel to Robbie. And then when Jones comes on the scene, they have, again, sort of similar relationships with him. And then also uh, Dono's friends who are from uh, New York, one of them is a lawyer and they say he's like the best litigator in the city. Um, And this sort of like level of advocacy seems to be one of the reasons that Robbie wants to trust these new friends. So I was just wondering if either of you had any thoughts about the way that occupation works. I think it may have to do some with the sort of generational um, wealth that's coming in, that occupation is a virtue and it's like people's virtues are defined by their like labor and industry. Um, and I think also sometimes their like sins are defined by this as well. Um, like I'm thinking about the the um, the jo- Jones's father who, who dies um, in the union busing act, like that's very connected to labor. And again, even though Donna like um, disavows the the act it's still connected to like the way that he makes money is it it, like what boss is like actually advocating 
for like unions like he, mm-hmm. he's not supporting the it's not he's not so going so far as to support the union either he's like i just wish this guy hadn't died so it seems like it just comes up a lot and maybe just more than other romance novels because like we have so many characters who are men so many characters who are working class so we know their jobs like we don't really have an aristocrat because um there it's in america so even the wealthy people have connections to industry yeah, so something that I was kind of thinking about while you were talking is like the uh, like a few characters that kind of like have like a, a sort of similarity, not necessarily career path, but like failed career path. And that's Keys, Denver's and Robbie. So all three of them kind of uh, have this like extreme potential and like for different reasons, like didn't end up pursuing it. So Keys, I think uh, he was like a extremely talented musician and teaching like wasn't necessarily his thing. Um, And even after he's kind of, we didn't really talk about this too much, but he was kind of not known to be saying like he referred to himself as Beethoven at some point and like he like became Beethoven and he was Beethoven in the house uh and then there's Denver's too like I think I can't quite remember what Denver's was doing before was he the one who was gonna he like lived he was with gonna, priest yes yeah oh yes he was gonna be a priest and they kick him out for his like maybe his sexuality I think that's the implication yeah and he uh and so he kind of like had a that like relationship with Mary Rose where it was like it kind of seemed like they their friendship was kind of like solidifying him onto the estate and then of course like as you mentioned then like the third is like Robbie who was going to be a lawyer but like kind of decided not to and it almost kind of felt like uh, partially maybe because it wasn't something that he was incredibly interested in and then partially just as a way to uh, communicate displeasure with his father right after Mm -hmm. his mother was sent away to the asylum so I think kind of like when you have like three like incredibly, incredibly intelligent people like uh, isolated on a household and some, some of them might not be the most sane, it does make for a very gothic tale. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the people who it's like getting access to this like cursed wealth. <laughs> That's what it feels like. You have these people who are maybe a little bit more industrious before and I don't want to, like, downplay, like, what a music tutor is going to be doing on the daily, but, like, I don't know. It's kind of a cushy job to me. Same with, like, with uh Robbie's Robbie. job is so cushy. I don't think Robbie yeah. was ever doing anything except drinking I mean, tea and wandering this, the estate. Like, librarian life is luxurious. And I was like, I know it's, like, this cursed house on Long Island. It was like, his library, like, he, he finds five, there's a point where he finds five copies of A Winter's Tale. And everyone's like, oh, my God, Robbie, like, you're such a good librarian. I was like, he found five books the same book like <laughs> the same copy like of course they're together and they're, they're like doting on or, oh you're so talented at this job i was like okay this is a very cushy librarian job yeah and like how many books he had a catalog i might have just made this number up but i could have sworn it was like seventy five thousand books and i'm just like i just don't know i'm like that seems like a lot of books to me and he seems to never be working so i mean seventy five thousand books is a lot to catalog but also his they they're very explicit when he starts the job they're like don't move the books like you don't have to organize them we just want you to like make a list of where everything is so it's he's he's like really just cataloging he doesn't have to implement a system um but so it's it's very like an observational style of librarianship 
But like even like him being a librarian, they're like, okay, this is the tea time. These are all the clothes that you're gonna get. Here's right. the wandering path for go, you. Go He'll take give a nap, you a Robbie. Like, 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 oh was my like, gosh! It was like I'm like, of course he's in love with Donna. <laughs> like, right. who would be in love with Donna? And he, he puts up like the most like passive resistance. It's like, oh, this is too much. Like he'll say that like the one time every time he's about to receive a gift. And then the, gif- the gifts just keep on coming. <laughs> They're like, oh, Robbie, with that face, you deserve it. <laughs> Robbie's very pretty. Like, I don't know if we've said yep. this, but Robbie's very pretty. Yeah, they remark on it. And then you're kind of, it's kind of like hinted at, like, oh, you kind of look like Dono. Like, they say that a few times <laughs> yeah. throughout the book to kind of, like, prime you for when you find out they're cousins. <laughs> I think also, too, like, future Robbie, like, talks about it he was like oh i didn't know if just like everybody thought they that they were pretty but it was nice right. to hear from other people that because like i just thought i was pretty like i didn't know that it was common knowledge like <laughs> that reminds me of the episode of 30 rock when i can't think of the actor's name right now but he plays matt in mad men um, oh John Hamm yeah, John Hamm he's like he's in the bubble he's like so handsome and he lives in the bubble that's like what it feels like with Robbie like he's just like isn't everyone handsome isn't everyone so nice to you <laughs> the doctor who can't do the Heimlich and like the librarian who can't like organize anything <laughs> okay, okay we're gonna move on to something okay. very heavy yes. I know. Um, John Hamm to <laughs> let me see if there is okay yeah Kind of moving on to a little bit later into the book, kind of like into a reveal. So even though he beats Robbie and at one point tries to kill him, Cormac professes himself in love with Robbie, having become infatuated during his nocturnal visits. Robbie thought that Jones had been leaving orchids in his room, but it turns out that it was Cormac. In the end, Robbie professes to love both Dono and Cormac. What do you think this says about how both Robbie and Cormac define love? Right. So before Cormac reveals himself, uh, Robbie quotes Twelfth Night, like the part when they arrive at Illyria, and Cormac kind of quotes back to him. Robbie speaks with Nanny Wells, and then he comes across the real Dono, who says Cormac will never hurt him again. And then Robbie then thinks to himself, this is another quote, one face, one voice, one habit, and two persons, a natural perspective. That is and is not. So another quote from Twelfth Night, which is a story about a fraternal male-female twins. Boyola has dressed as a man for most of her time with Duke Orsino, who's the one who says the quote I just referenced. And he says that when he sees the twins standing together for the first time. I think twins in literature sometimes embody this like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dynamic. Dono is introverted and sensitive like Robbie, while Cormac's described as violent and strong. He leads and Dono follows. I feel like Robbie's love for both of them is because they're presented as almost two halves that complete a whole. Well, Cormac loves like Romeo and Juliet, and he looks on his father and Stephen, who died by cyanide, as romantic. Like he thinks they died by suicide. But um, there's a lot of Shakespearean references and love going around. And even at the end of the book, Robbie and Dono paraphrase Sonnet 116 to each other. Yeah, so early on in this book, Robbie notes, I read books on the subject of twins. I was possessed by Cormac and Dono Gaylord on my treks up the beach. I imagined perfection as they merged into one flesh. Where my Dono feared to tread, Cormac would rashly charge and carry me away. 
So he recognizes that Dono has a paralyzing fear that could stop them from becoming lovers. And the only way he can really visualize a union is to combine Dono with the qualities that he's attributed to Cormac. Like he doesn't know Cormac. He, and honestly, frankly, what he's heard at this point is not flattering. So it's kind of a little bit amazing that he came to this. When Robbie realizes that a lot of his intimacy with Dono was actually with Cormac, this works to affirm that belief that the three of them are the most unified version of love he can imagine, with Dono and Cormac making up for each other's deficiencies. But this is also Robbie being extremely fanciful, as Cormac has a black and white thinking about love. It's either the way I want it to be, or it's violence. Remember him attacking Brian in the cave after Brian rejected his advances. This is essentially how Cormac tries to resolve Robbie's unwillingness to run away with him. If we can't be together in life, we'll be together in death. Earlier in the book, Robbie quotes Wuthering Heights while thinking of Dono. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And this happens before he begins his regular trysts with Cormac, who he thinks is Dono at the time. So it's a little bit of foreshadowing for how Cormac and Robbie's relationship will end, which is tragically. And I guess just to kind of tie it to another book, this has been rolling around in my brain and I kind of can compare Cormac to Sean from Stormfire, particularly in the way that they approached the possibility of love kind of as if it's impossible for them. Uh, and they can't really divorce it from violence. It's this thing that Sean says, I gape at love and rend it with clumsy fingers, yet still hold its tatters close in idiot hope it may live again. So I think the point about Robbie being fanciful is important because he has a kind of shifting understanding of the formula of love, which makes sense because he's 17 during the main events of the book. He lines himself up as a parallel to Dono, though they have really different backstories and motivations for their introversion. But simultaneously, both Robbie and Dono feel this acute absence of Cormac's dynamism and action, even at its most violent. That shifting and processing of what love looks like when violence is baked into the world that you're existing in, especially when it comes to aligning yourself with the object of your affection, reminded me of the talented Mr. Ripley, both the 1998 film and the Patricia Highsmith novel. And that is what all of Robbie's insistence that he and Dono are the same made me think of. And in that both the movie and novel, the watcher and observer and adopter of another's life is cast as sinister if sympathetic. One of the parts that makes Ripley sympathetic is the tragedy of losing himself in his cons and his marks. It's really sad to watch. Robbie, as a first-person narrator, doesn't characterize the subsumption of himself into Donna Gaylord as a negative. It's what makes this a happily ever after. But it's just different than that foil of the kind of romanticization he thinks about in terms of Cormac. Do you have anything else? Yeah, that was really great. I do love the concept of like reading books about twins. Like, what is he reading? Like, what is, <laughs> is it like a scientific book? Like, what, what is he picking up that he's like, this will make me understand Cormac and Dono? Yeah, I, I was like thinking to, it was so funny. I was thinking about twins and historical romance because I have like a handful that I always can think of. And I'm like, None, none as sinister as a gothic, though. I think that this is kind of like a very specific. Oh, um, Crimson Peak. Aren't they twins in that? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's Crimson Peak. Yeah, that's that's a good kind of twins and incest again. So Jones is a hugely important character to the story. He's almost like a foil for Robbie. Robbie is gentle, not super inquisitive, extremely well educated, and beautiful. Robbie hates Jones, who he describes as ugly, uncouth, mean-spirited, and nosy. 
He's also put off by Jones's ambition, the blackmail attempt, and his relationship with both Keys and Denver's. It's not until Jones dies that Robbie sees him as a victim. What do you make of Jones' character arc? I think having an outside, another outsider come into the house did a lot of work of making the book more readable once Jones showed up. Maybe it was a little bit of like meta theater, but I was feeling really untethered about what exactly was going on at Gaywick with Donna and his servants. When Jones comes in and is sort of announcing, things are a bit weird, but I'm going to use that to get mine. It's so different than Robbie's approach of sort of like waiting and seeing like what's going to happen with all these weird things that are going on at the house. It made, for at least for me as a reader, like be able to follow what was going on more because Jones sort of starts asking questions about the men in the house. Gothic main characters are so often these observers. I really thought of uh, the second Mrs. De Winter is a huge one who's like just watches things going on in the house and doesn't ask questions. But something has to happen to move the plot forward and sort of shake the watcher out of the corner that they're standing in. I think Jones's death sort of serves that function for Robbie. Jones is one of the standout characters of the book for me. He is one of the most unsettling presences and he also has that horrifying death. He's seen by Robbie as a usurper, disrupting his peace at Gaywick, but Jones was maybe a bit more of a canary in the coal mine, as something was very, very wrong beforehand, but Robbie was just willing to kind of ignore it. Jones gets a sort of over-the-top gothic death that's reserved for schemers, where his corpse is described in a horrifying way that will stick with your memory. I read Victoria Holt's The India Fan as a child, and I don't remember much of that book, but I do remember the death of Lavinia, who was a beautiful and treacherous woman whose ambition got her killed. Her body is discovered by the heroine, mutilated and spread-eagled on a bed, and it kind of sticks out as that one moment, like it, it, above all others that you'll probably remember because it seems uh, so much more intense than the rest that came before it. Robbie spends so much time thinking about Jones as an adult man, but for the reader, it's so clear that his behavior is that of a child that's not only been neglected, but abused by the adults that he's in the care of. His death is the first time that Robbie sees how vulnerable Jones was in that household. Yeah, I really liked what both of you said, um, and Jones is kind of voicing what isn't being said, almost like the voice of the reader, where he's like, that's weird, Robbie. Like... <laughs> And there are so many pairs in this book. So I think Robbie and Jones' relationship kind of mimics Dono and Cormac's in a way. At least in their character traits, where Jones is outspoken and won't let things lie and is kind of like Cormac. And I found this quote that I feel like puts him, Jones and Cormac, in like the same box in a way. So Jones says, after he tells Robbie what Cormac did to Brian... Cormac was a fucker, and you think I'm a bad lot, observed Jones, winking and leaving me to my agitated self. In my bed that night, I found 13 headless bees, which again is like a reference to something that Cormac did, where he like cut off 13 head heads of bees. That's a weird thing to say. And, and Cormac was also 13 when he did that, which is yes. the same age that Jones is. And it's really one of those things where it's like, the, the first bees were weird, and Robbie was like, Cormac was such like, like such oh, a goofy kid, yeah, goofy kid. Like that's so strange <laughs> to find this, and it's like no, this is like this is signaling violence to come, Robbie. Um, and then when Jones puts it in the bed, it's like oh, like you you cannot ignore that this is like a sign of violence. This is a clue of violence that's going on, um, in this household. And I feel like it's just R Robbie has like this optimistic, pure vision of Gaywick. He's having a great time, as we were like joking about before. But it's like. 
Jones, who is experiencing, like, the trauma and, like, the dystopian view of Gaelic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, Jones, I-, I think kind of, like, the uncharitable ways that Robbie described him kind of, like, made it that much more clear to me how vulnerable Jones was. Like, yes, he's extremely clever. Like, he's smarter than Robbie, frankly, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, um, he's... Uh, extremely clever but he also is not anywhere near as educated like he's not uh handsome or attractive he cannot pass for being wealthy like Robbie is able to enter like a lot of spaces uh I don't think there's any version of the world where Jones would have an ambition for Harvard or that that would be something that people would foster within him and kind of because of that vulnerability and because of the fact that he had to constantly be advocating for himself like he kind of like uh Robbie sees him as someone who is like more than capable and also is frankly kind of evil but uh it it makes it easier for the adults in his life to take advantage of him uh because they're also kind of like painting him as an adult as well I think too like Jones's intelligence in contrast to Robbie's I think it could like cast Robbie like I think Robbie is definitely in the gothic mode of like a too stupid to live heroine like he's like right there of Mm -hmm. like just like lack of observance but Jones's presence doesn't make Robbie seem dumber or like more too stupid to live it's more like oh you just have like access to different realities at Gaywick yes um and so it may it almost makes Robbie's like not asking questions make more sense because it's like why would you mess mess up you're you got the good part of Gaywick why would you mess that up um and now there's someone else here who's like kind of sowing discord and robbie's like stop doing that like i i don't want things to change but also all while that's happening jones is sort of has entered into these like abusive relationships with denver's and keys um who are both sleeping with robbie and like have have told themselves that they've fallen in love with robbie or not robbie like with jones um and so they're abusing the younger boy and so Joe, it's like while Robbie gets to sort of fall in love with the man who's a little bit older than him and, and gets to have this happily ever after, Jones is relegated to pretty clearly abuse. He's much younger than Robbie. He's 13 and much younger than the men who are abusing him. And and it's like Rob, it, it explains why Robbie doesn't ask questions, but also it sort of gets to the point where Robbie sort of like has to start wondering what's going on at Gaywick. Yeah, it's funny because, like, in our little group chat, Em and I had not read this book, and we were like, oh, this is, like, a little utopia, and Chelsea was like, obviously you're not very far into the book, <laughs> but I think we are both right at the part before Jones had entered the picture, so it was, like, right. a utopia where you're like, oh, they're just fun, and they're going to New York, and spending time with, like, Donald's friends, and, right. like, having this right. great time, and so, yeah, everything you said was perfect, Emma, where it's like... He doesn't want to shake his vision of Gaywick. He's having a great time, so it does at least clarify why we have such like an uninquisitive hero. And I knew that the other shoe would drop because it's a gothic. So I was like, yeah. "Oh, Mac is gonna come back." Like I think I told yeah. my sister, I was like, "Oh, they're doing a they're doing a prestige." Like that was my thing. I that, that was too. my <laughs> Where's um, the other bird? I was yeah. like, "Yes." Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "The, the Cormac is not dead." I knew that immediately. Um, like if they're twins. And one yeah. of them is dead, one of them is not dead. So I expected Cormac to come back, but I thought all of the sort of sinister, like sinister nature of Gaywick would come from Cormac coming back and he would start like, like when things are going missing or um, he would start uh, like abusing Robbie or, or tricking Robbie. But it was actually like the, the rot was so much more extended to these characters. I was like, oh, this is so great. Like 
these like kind of like weird gay men have been employed at Gaywick and like there's this like little utopia and they're like training Robbie to be a librarian like this seems so nice but actually it's so much like wider the net of like abuse and um like that's sort of wrought by by this family and house I do like it wasn't all like we have like a solitary bad guy I think it kind Mm -hmm. of like makes it seem like the intergenerational trauma is divvied out to everyone I feel like it's just like a it's a little bit harder when it's multiple people involved yeah because you could say like I I, you could potentially point to like Cormac and Donna's father as kind of like the instigator but then like and and I think that's like in some ways it it doesn't really but like they're like oh he he flew too close to the sun and like he kind of dangled Denver's from a string like not realizing that would eventually be what gets him killed um but it but it's kind of like all of these characters on their own are bad actors and like who knows what would have happened like if Jones never arrived in the story at all like kind of the only thing that would really change is that Jones wouldn't have died and I guess like some of the reveals uh that Jones had from blackmailing wouldn't have happened but like uh Keys and Denver's were both still attacking Robbie Robbie just didn't know it yeah so Virgo wrote in the author's note that after Stonewall, he noticed that, quote, the mad wife in the attic secret of Jane Eyre had been overtaken by the husband having a male lover in gothic romance, and that the beast of a husband dies ignominiously, and the now wealthy orphan faces the future with the real man who has been lurking in the plot as a dress extra. So what's interesting to me is that Gaywick is not a book that's afraid of nastiness. Almost all of the characters are gay men, and with the exception of Robbie and maybe Brian, have behaved in pretty horrifying ways. In 2023, we're obsessed with the idea of good representation when it comes to queer media, but that would exclude more complicated and groundbreaking works like Gaywick. What do you think has changed since Virga published the story? When it comes to queer representation and sort of discourse I see about this, mostly on TikTok, there seems to be this angle is like, what if straight people read this and then think less of gay people, which is just so clearly not what Virga is concerned with. His audience seems to be gay men. He has all these references to this like canon of 20th century films that I really strongly associate with gay men, like the references to Betty Davis films, the reference to Audrey Hepburn films that I can imagine as in jokes with like an in in the know community of gay men. It seems so unfair to demand that Virgo anticipate an audience that he might not think would read his book anyway, or that he doesn't really seem to care if they read it. Plus, Gaywick exists with this like extreme conflict. Sometimes the sweetness in queer romance means that the subgenre makes for one type of story over and over, where we have like low conflict queer romances, which I think people sometimes write or read in response to this question of representation. And I think there's definitely a place for those, but I don't think queer people should only get low conflict romances. We should be able to read queer stories that are extremely high conflict, like Gaywick. Yeah, I hope people don't exclude it when they want to like talk about queer media and it's meant to push boundaries and challenge you. Like we've been talking about like the first half of the book and world presents as this utopia and then you learn about like all the generational trauma that in this world and it we get some real tragic underpinnings. 
This is something that I've been kind of obsessed with since reading Gaywick because I kind of feel like there's now this impossible standard for queer media where it needs to be good representation. But good representation often doesn't mean interesting or useful queer characters. It means queer characters who behave morally and set a good example. I think part of the reason that this has taken off is that people think that if queer media is unobjectionable, then it can't contribute to further marginalization. But that's also not our responsibility. What makes Gaywick particularly fascinating is that I can very easily see someone reading it and thinking, this book paints gay people as inherently sexually deviant or incestuous, which is a way that people do perceive gay people. But Virga, as Emma mentioned, isn't writing a book for people who hate gay people, so why should he have to worry about their perceptions enough to mitigate some of the nastiness and cruelty from the world that he's created? And nobody thinks about, like, how, how no one's concerned about the representation of, like, straight white men in romance novels. Like, there's yeah. so many of them and some of them suck and it's like that's not coloring anyone it, it it doesn't make any sense for this to be like let's focus on representation for like and i think i think you could even extend it to like heroines if you mm-hmm. need to do something more broadly like is is the woman doing something feminist is the woman not doing something feminist i think any sort of population that experiences subjugation that's like an unfair standard to set upon them like is this behavior serving their community like when they're a fictional character within like a little universe yeah and that feminist thing that you mentioned too like i think that like is particularly like even heavier in romance because i think people often tend to treat romance as it has a moral responsibility and i think the reason that we get this idea that romance is like a moral genre is i I think partially because of like maybe early backlash to romance as a genre where people who are fans of romance wanted to be like no it has value like romance can teach you about consent it's not all rapey or like romance can Uh, teach you about these types of things but like I think we're really doing ourselves a huge disservice by like focusing on like learning morals from romance like learning good things from romance when uh, that kind of isolates romance as an uh, instructional genre Gothic romance doesn't need that. Gothic romance has never needed that. But as someone who unfortunately is on TikTok talking about gothic romance all the time, I can tell you a lot of people's reactions to gothic romance, like especially gothic romance bodice rippers. And I think Gaywick isn't, I don't even know if I would call it, maybe, <laughs> but like there has a lot in common with bodice rippers. I think like comparing Gaywick and this other Eden, there's so much similarities. That's a gothic and a bodice ripper. I, I think like the way that people react to that is like, this is immoral. This shouldn't exist. This is romanticizing. And so I, I think that like we're kind of like doing everyone a disservice by kind of like framing this as a way of thinking about like the characters, about the people, about the ideas. Like we can't have themes, like we can't explore things. We can't just like be uncomfortable and sit in that for a little bit. Uh, and and Gaywick is, I think, kind of like uh, maybe like where I, I'm, I'm putting all my like going to put all my hopes that like people will kind of understand, like because this is a very big book, it's very important, groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And I think that like because of that, we can kind of look at it and say, oh, it, it doesn't need to be moral. It's a gothic romance. It's uh, it, and it gets its value from other places. Yeah, but it's how how much how useful is representation if the representation is serving people who are not being represented? Like if, if you're mm-hmm. writing queer representation, but your main audience is like hateful straight people, that's not 
that's not useful to anyone, even if you're that's what you're aiming at. Um, it, it just doesn't make any sense to demand Virga to to think like, oh, like what if what if people read this in bad faith? Um, that's not oh, no. that's not fun. And also, the book would be less fun to read as a gothic if the characters were moral. And something I think about too, about like the way that I think uh, this could potentially happen, it would be like putting uh, Gaywick on par with the books that uh, Virgo was critiquing when he wrote Gaywick. Like, because the gay villain is actually kind of a huge thing in uh, older historical romances, like in the 70s, particularly like the idea, like your uh, the violence is like stemming from gayness, and it becomes even more like uncomfortable when you realize like the that typically like the height of the AIDS epidemic when these stories were coming out when it would like kind of hurt the most so I think that's kind of like making him like kind of uh analyzing his work from that like exact same perspective of like morality and should the characters and what is this trying to say when Virga has all of his characters are gay like there's no gay villain there are many gay villains there's every character is gay it's it's just a very different thing I guess I'm kind of thinking of, uh, so Fortune's Lady by Patricia Gaffney, uh, that is actually a very good book with a very horrifying ending. And it has kind of that same thing where it's like the villain of the story. He's like a masochist, I think. And like, Mm -hmm. he's like, and part of his violence comes from the fact that he's not attracted to women. And so he hurts them instead. And like, that's kind of like, uh, kind of like a way that people used to talk about gay people. So I think I can kind of understand like the defensiveness of like not wanting to see this type of character. But I think that uh, when you talk about gay villains, I think you kind of need to like zoom out a little bit on kind of like what is actually being said, what is being told. And then also maybe like think about themes, like maybe not necessarily about like literal characters representing literal things. So I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to think about it, but it just kind of like makes my skin itch to think about people like saying that Gaywick has bad representation the way that Fortune's Lady would be bad representation. I just feel like it's shallow analysis. And I think people want to get ahead of criticisms that they feel like might be coming by just labeling like, okay, um, we've got some queer villains here. That seems kind of like this other thing. So I'm just going to label this bad as opposed to Mm -hmm. being like really looking at what Virga is doing differently as opposed to like this um, kind of standard queer villain that we get at times and not cha- seeing how he has like subverted it. Mm-hmm. So I've seen this book described as not having a happily ever after, but I actually think it has an HEA that is very similar in tone to a lot of bodice rippers. It's bittersweet and leaves you feeling a bit winded, but it, it's most definitely the couple ending up together. Um, do you agree with this assessment or do you also see other similarities to bodice rippers? Um, I think it's similar in tone because a lot of bodice rippers are spiritually closer to gothic romances. And, you know, he published this in 1980. So like the genre convention of like a very tidy happily ever after hadn't quite become the standard yet, but it is still like like I, this is a happily ever after. I think it's just because you go through so much, kind of like with, the same with a bodice ripper, like mm-hmm. Stormfire. That's how we we read that, and we we're like, yeah, they're together, but who knows? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> last chapter has ended. Um, I guess you couldn't quite say that with Gateway because we do get like a little snippet into the future and that they live like a long, a life happy together. life. Yeah, like a nice long life together. But they have gone through so much together feels very similar to like a bodice ripper 
Yeah, I was thinking about it like in a happily ever after in terms of like there being like a house problem that the house problem has to be solved because I think that's another connection between this book and Rebecca and Jane Eyre where the the house has to be dealt with. The Gaywick is the source of all this rot. And Virga takes it even a step further and maybe more literally. Um, so in both Rebecca and Jane Eyre, the houses burn down at the end of the book and that's like what allows there to be like a, a cleansing of the couple and like, lets them get to their happily ever after. But in this book, Gaywick has already been burned. Like that's what we're, when um, the the father and his lover died um, and supposedly Cormac died was there was like a fire at the house and it's been since rebuilt. So now with Dono taking over, the post burning would be the fresh start of the house. But because of Cormac's continued presence and then also Keyes and Denver's own participation in sort of the rot of abusive coercive relationships, that keeps the newness from happening. And so what they have sort of have to do to get to their happily ever after outside of Gaywick is that they sort of steal away to the Gramercy Park Hotel or not the, the Gramercy Park House. And that's where they they stay, and that's sort of where they they set up their sort of central um, hub for themselves as a couple. And so I just that that's interesting that the the normal way for a gothic romance that's centered on a house to deal with the house is to burn it down. And Gaywick that the first time it burns, or the, the when it burns, it doesn't work, mm -hmm. um, and they have to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the author's note, Fierga described the ending of Gaywick by saying, "Gaywick ends with a happy union, conjoined lives full of intimacy and happiness, though not with the loss of individuality. If quote unquote gay culture evolves in part from a closeted, lonely, promiscuous existence, then I'm obviously in favor of its demise. However, I never conceived a life for my characters like the 1950s sitcom version of marriage." So it does meet the HEA requirement in that Robbie and Dono spend the rest of their lives together, although the end of the happiness is more abrupt, kind of similar as you were saying, Beth, about how we experienced the ending of Stormfire. I think this is maybe where Virga's comments about the 1950s version of marriage comes into play, and the idea that happily ever after for a gay couple has to look different than it does for straight people. So yeah, I guess, does anybody have any final thoughts? I just love how much Virga loves Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> I, I found like four different references to uh, Audrey Hepburn movies. And I was like, I want to talk to him about Audrey Hepburn. I also want to talk to him about Gene Tierney because I wonder if he's seen Dragonwick. Mm -hmm. um, I just, that's what the title made me think of was Dragonwick, which was also He has novel, seen but, Dragonwick. Uh, he references okay. it in the author's note. Okay. I, need, I don't think my edition had an author's note oh, in it, no. but I was like, this reminded me of Dragonwick, which is a great movie with Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. um, so again, like sort of very queer um, husband, very queer coded husband with Gene Tierney who comes to the house and like has mm -hmm. to uncover. That's also a very like good labor movie because it has to do with like labor riots. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I love the the references to old old Hollywood movies, which is something that I would never have thought to say. Like I thought when I read that, that he does that, I was like, this is going to be so contrived. Like, <laughs> how is he going to reference old Hollywood movies in this book that's set in eighteen ninety nine? But he he pulls it off with a plum. He's he's very skilled at integrating quotes. And it seems like very organic dialogue when he does it. If you join our Patreon, you can get more old Hollywood movie recommendations from Emma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we put Emma on the hook for that then. Huh? <laughs> I assume there will be more in the future. Yeah. There's already oh, yeah, essays on there, had, so yeah, you can just true. scroll down. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll put a meme. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get shit posting from Chels. <laughs> that's my that's my my area of expertise. Yeah, no, I I did really like Gaywick. I think I I think I'm gonna be spending kind of like the next like few weeks processing it. Um, 
thinking about it again because there's like so much in here. Uh, I love I love it when people write a book that's like not an easy read. Like it's something that yeah. like uh, I can pull more out of from conversation. Like I've had thoughts during our conversation that I've never had before the few times that I've read it. And I think that's just like so fun. Gothic romance is superior, I think. <laughs> I just love gothic romance. I'm a spooky dude. <laughs> I want to read more of it now. I've been like reading about Victoria Holt, but I haven't read any Victoria Holt oh, yet. Oh, really? Um, so I'm I'm kind of in connection with this, but also because I was thinking about um like people like heroes who want to kill their wives. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and I just was like, oh, like this. I was just reading a lot about like different plot summaries from Victoria Holt. I was like, I need to need to pick one and read it. Because I think I'm kind of like into spooky things. Because I was also thinking, I like that Virga, I think Virga is the only person who could have written this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep trying to start Regency romances, and I'm just kind of getting tired of like plug and chug, mad lib romances, which I think there's a place for, and I often sometimes find comfort in, but that's just like not the season of my life right now. I don't want to read, I don't want to read anything about a ballroom. Like there's something else has to happen. <laughs> We're entering our gothic season. <laughs> Yeah. reformed rakes all together like i have the silver devil sitting on like my kindle but every time i'm about to open it i'm like we're probably gonna do an episode on this we are day. absolutely going to do so, an episode <laughs> they could just save it for then but yeah awesome. it was really good i i like what you said that it's like it's a book i've been thinking about i don't know how, i think we're kind of like a good book like I wouldn't be like this is the best book I've ever read but it's like very it's compelling like we have it's lots of rich. things to say uh, yeah there's lots in there there were definitely parts where I was like oh I don't think this is written as well like yeah like there were, I think we all or at least Beth and I struggled to like follow some of the the dialogue tags yeah um, which I think is maybe a convention that like I'm just used to reading newer books that have more like hand-holding for the reader um in romance of like following a plot and also like that there is so much plot and that's so different than a lot of sort of modern historical romance that focuses so much just on the romance art but it still was like it kept me reading even when I was like I have no idea what's going on I was like I think I'll figure it out by the I'll figure it out I'm compelled to continue going yes Uh, and some of some of the um descriptions of like the house and characters by Robbie like sort of especially when he's thinking to himself or writing in his journal it was incredible writing. Virga is very evocative. And the family history telling is yeah. perfect. Oh, the family no history. notes. So good. Yeah, that was perfect. Uh yeah, my whole thing is like if I'm reading a gothic and I don't have I don't know what's happening, I'm like, I am the heroine. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> yes. You just keep it going. It will be revealed to me in time. <laughs> right. Exactly. Awesome. Some villain will arrive and tell you what his plot is. Yeah. Also what, like what all the other villains were up to as well. Yeah. Um so concluded. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find monthly bonus episodes on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformed rakes. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.